Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with professor of psychology, Dr. Doug Kenrick, to discuss evolution and human motivation. Doug is the President's Professor and Area Head of Social Psychology at Arizona State University. His research focuses on integrating evolutionary biology and cognitive science to study the effects of fundamental social motivations on basic cognitive processes. Doug has authored over 200 articles on evolutionary psychology, edited several books, and co-authored two multi-edition textbooks including Social Psychology, Goals in Interaction, with Steve Newberg, Bob Cialdini, and David Lundberg-Kenrick, now in its seventh edition. In 2022, Doug received the Lifetime Career Award for Distinguished Scientific Contribution by the Human Behavior and Evolution Society. He's written several general audience books, including Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life, and his newest book, co-authored with his son, David Lundberg-Kenrick, Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain. Doug and I spoke at length about some of the fundamental human motives and how they influence our modern thoughts and behaviors. Many questions about why humans behave a certain way can be illuminated through understanding the challenges of our early and pre-human ancestors and the environment that reinforced certain types of traits over others. Questions like, how do I obtain food, water, and shelter in order to stay alive? How do I protect myself and my tribe? And how do I find and maintain a mate to pass on my genes to the next generation? These are just a few of the core motives that we explored. And while the specifics of how we achieve these outcomes has changed drastically, you can observe their impacts on thinking and behavior on a daily basis. One takeaway I had relates to the abundance, or lack thereof, of a resource, and how that influences our motivation. Having too little of a resource, or having too much of a resource, can both lead to harmful outcomes unless we engage our higher-order thinking to understand these urges from an evolutionary lens. Another takeaway I had was how we need to be cautious when technology steps in to make our lives easier. Our brains evolved in a time without some of the advantages we have today. While things like Uber Eats, Amazon, social media, and online dating apps seem to provide a great service to us, we must remember that there can be unintended consequences when these services interact with our Stone Age brains. We need to be constantly asking ourselves, might there be a downside to how certain advances leverage our reward systems? I was delighted to hear Doug effortlessly weave in real-world examples of how modern situations reflect our more primitive psychology. I hope you enjoy our talk as well. Okay, today I am joined by Doug Kenrick. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Glad to be here, Ryan. Uh, so uh, 
your new book, uh, which is co-authored uh, with your son, uh, David Lundberg Kenrick, is entitled Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain. And so uh, today we're going to we're going to talk about some some modern problems and uh, what the what the field of evolutionary psychology has to offer in terms of uh, perspectives on these problems. So uh, why don't we start off uh, as, as broad as possible? I'm, I'm curious as to uh, what evolutionary psychology and our in our evolutionary environment has to say about about a typical day in an American adult life, right? So mm -hmm. we, we know that there's this theme in evolutionary psychology of uh, of our brain e evolving in a time that is uh, that is very different from modern day. If you if you take a typical day of an American, so you, you wake up in the morning, uh, you maybe have some breakfast, you drive to work. Uh, you get off of work, you, you might do a hobby or something fun. Maybe some of us exercise after work. If you have children, you're picking up kids from school. You have another meal. And a lot of us sort of just sort of, you know, hang out around our house at the end of the day. Some of us veg out on the couch. Maybe some people go out and have a few drinks, right? Uh -huh. In terms of a typical day, what are some meaningful differences between our modern life and the early human uh, environment where our brains evolved. Right. So that's a great, a great way to think about the questions we bring up in this book. So let me start at the other side, which is uh, what did our ancestors have to deal with on a daily basis? Okay. And we organize this in terms of uh, yeah, my colleagues and I have this kind of renovated Maslow's pyramid. What you know, Maslow was sort of an early evolutionary psychologist, but he didn't think much about mating, which is interesting. But that was 60, 70 years ago when he was writing. Uh, but uh we sort we renovated his period in terms of what's you know, his I'm sorry, renovated his uh pyramid in terms of what's been happening in research for the last uh half a century. And we have it organized in terms of the kinds of problems that, that human beings need to solve uh, developmentally, which is one of the organizing themes of Maslow's original period uh, pyramid, I'm saying, mm -hmm. sorry. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And uh, that means I may keep saying that for the next half hour. <laughs> I was originally a Skinnerian, and Skinner said, don't ever make a mistake. Because uh, if you make a mistake like playing a piano piece, you'll just keep making that same mistake. <laughs> so pyramid. Uh, our pyramid basically says that, well, developmentally, a human being, the first problem that a baby confronts is they want to get, they want to be, you know, kept alive by their mother. So they want nourishment, they want food, they want warmth, they want, you know, uh, liquid. Uh, and that never goes away, okay? But when a kid gets a little bit older, they start to walk around. And then they there's the danger they could walk out from the village, let's say, and get hurt by a predator or, you know, killed by some stranger or fall off a cliff or something. So there's this self-protection motivation that emerges when kids get to be, I, I don't know developmental psych very well, but when kids get to be about a year old, they become afraid of strangers, 
And that's related to this idea of, you know, strangers used to be kind of dangerous to us. In fact, strangers can still be dangerous to us, but uh, more so in the ancestral environment. You get a little bit older, you start to become concerned with making friends. Uh, little kids don't care what you think of them, okay? Uh, and they don't play very well when they are first put into like preschool, okay? But then it, there comes an age, I don't know if you have kids, but when you notice that all of a sudden they start to care about playing with other children, uh, but they don't really care whether those kids look up to them as you know, they, they're willing to sort of soil their diapers and continue playing alongside the other kid without right. any consideration of how this might look, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. But then they reach an age in which they become very concerned with how other people pay attention to them. Okay, so they become concerned with what we would call status, broadly speaking. And then only when kids reach puberty do they become concerned with finding a mate, Okay, they, I mean, I like to tell a story about my older son, uh, who now has two kids of his own. But when he was about 11 years old, we were um, driving up the coastal highway in California. And this song came on, I forget who the authors of the song were, but it's a, it's a, a, a surfing song about Surf City. And one of the lines was, you know, two girls for every boy. And my son listened to that and he went, yuck, <laughs> who would ever want to go there? And I said, just hang on a couple of years, kid. Right, you know, right, right. Even when I say that now, he says, I never said that. No, you said it, you know. Uh, <laughs> and my other son, same way when he was growing up, it's like, why would you want to play with girls? Uh, but then suddenly people reach puberty and everything changes. Uh, and then uh, once you find a mate, okay, and there's a lot of, you know, some people play an unrestricted strategy, take a long time finding a particular mate, uh, but uh, other people settle down right away. But nevertheless, once you find a mate, you have to hang on to that mate. And as many people have learned, it's not the same problem. Okay, some people are good at finding mates, but not so good at hanging on to them. And then finally, at the sort of the the developmental peak of the uh, of the pyramid is caring for your offspring. Okay, when you have children, now it all starts all over again. You become concerned with protecting them. You become concerned with them making friends. You become concerned with them getting some respect, them finding mates and so forth. Uh, and so the argument is that that's, that unfolds developmentally and it's universal. Every human being who ever existed had to deal with those problems or they were not our ancestors. Okay, many human beings didn't find mates, but they're not represented in today's population. Okay, right. Every one of your ancestors and my ancestors found a mate. They may have well have kept that mate because kids survive better in the ancestors. They survive better, in fact, even now in very traditional societies way out in the middle of the jungle, if they have both parents there. Okay, So uh, the idea is that all of these problems are universals that humans had to face. So now let's go back to an ancestral village, hunter-gatherers. Right. People were surrounded by a bunch of, of relatives, okay? Um, babies still needed to get fed. They still needed to be cared for. They were often, what was a little different is that their sisters cared for them a lot more than they might do now. Um, and they needed to worry maybe about the village being invaded. Not that they thought about that as a kid, but they certainly had to protect themselves. They had to, you know, get respect. 
they had to make friends because there's a lot of research that anthropologists have done, like my colleague uh, Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado did some research looking at a group called the Ache, who were living in a kind of a, I believe, a sort of a early horticultural environment in uh, somewhere in Ecuador. And they counted the calories that people, that every family brought in. And what they found is that if they didn't risk pool, if they didn't share their food with members of other families nearby, everybody would have reached the point where their children starved. Okay. You need cooperative relationships with other people to feed yourself because right. one day I catch a fish, I share it with you. Maybe I don't catch anything, you know, next Friday and I'm very hungry, but you share it with me. By risk pooling, human beings did much better. Okay. We're very much a group, a, a, a species that is selected to live in groups, to get along with members of groups. I mean, social psychology is we're naturally interested in social psychology because our brains are, in fact, in many ways, designed to deal with social problems. And then uh, they had to find mates, but it was a different. So what was different? Uh, there weren't that many mating. There weren't that many friend options. For one thing, your friends were your cousins, okay, or they maybe were your in-laws, okay, but they were always close to you because the villages were small. Uh, in fact, it was research kind of a built-in. Yeah, it was. It was a built-in social network. There exactly. wasn't a lot of going out, and it, it wasn't a directive that you like going out and finding food. Going out and finding friends and peers was something that we didn't have to do. But it's, strangely enough, it's something that we probably have to do now. Right. So let, let's switch to now thinking about the modern world. How's it different? That's the question you asked. Okay. And I just wanted to get the background of, so yeah. all humans had to deal with these problems. Do we still, yes, we still need to feed ourselves. We still need friends. Okay. We still need to, you know, we still would like to find mates. We don't really need to, in some sense, we don't care about, you know, increasing overpopulation. You know, I mean, I, I'm fine with not having, I happen to have two children. Okay. But I would have been maybe you know, I'm fine with anyone who says zero children, but, you know, we, even if you say, I don't want to have children, you, if you're interested in sex, you end up having children. Okay. And our ancestors certainly did because they didn't have birth control. Uh, but so people do, we still want to find romantic partners, even if we don't think we want to have a big family. Um, and we still want respect. Okay. We want all of the things that our ancestors wanted, but we have both some opportunities they didn't have and some obstacles that they didn't have, okay? And sometimes the opportunities become obstacles. I mean, so let's take a good example, getting calories. Uh, it used to be that starvation was a big part of human life. When I was a kid, okay, I was born in 1948, there were more people starving in the world than dying of obesity-related problems. Mm -hmm. Now the right. UN estimates that it's exactly the opposite of that. More people are dying because they're eating too much of the wrong kinds of foods than because they're starving. Okay, it isn't that no one's starving somewhere, but way more people are dying of heart disease and you know other obesity and diabetes. You know, uh, and so we are now, oddly enough. We have the opportunity to have calories. I mean, I can go down to the supermarket. I can fill my shopping cart with Ben and Jerry's, <laughs> with a case of my favorite IPA, you yeah. know, with potato chips, 
And I can, you know, I could, or, you know, I could eat like Elvis Presley, who was at the time one of the richest people in the world. And he would just go and eat these big, you know, uh, Italian sandwiches, you know, heroes that had like uh, peanut butter and bacon. And you know, he'd eat the whole thing, you know, and I right. could do that. I could eat peanut butter and bacon heroes all day long. I could, you know, drink beer all day long. And many people do, unfortunately. And yeah. there's cases like uh, there's a guy that we talk about in the uh, second chapter. His uh, his name was uh, let me get his right name because I had it here. Walter Hudson. Walter Hudson got up to one thousand one hundred and ninety seven pounds. I, I may be rounding <laughs> differently there, but it was it was above eleven hundred uh, pounds that Walter Hudson got to. And uh that was impossible in the ancestral environment. Right. There just were, nobody was going to sit around. You know, his his sister kept bringing him food. He he couldn't leave the bedroom. He couldn't fit through the door. Okay, um, and he and died. This is a, so this is this is a resource issue, right? It, it, mm -hmm. Is this is it is this a a general difference that that is that goes beyond appetite? Where uh, so if our default setting for you know feeding ourselves is based off of a, an environment where food was scarce right uh, are there are are the other types of mechanisms in our default settings are, are they all kind of centered around this idea of scarcity that uh, food and 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 relationships and stuff like that are we hardwired to sort of exist in a in a scarce resource environment I like that question. I, I think the answer is sometimes and sometimes not. Okay. So for example, um, if you think about friendship, well, um, you know, I have over a thousand friends on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, that's probably that's ridiculous. Okay, people don't. I think it's Robin Dunbar who estimates that the average human being has something like a hundred. I'm making that number up, but I, do you know this stuff? I think it's something like a hundred friends that you actually know that you're acquainted with, that you know their name, they know your name. But right. amongst my thousand friends on Facebook, some of their names I don't even know. Some of them I've never even met. Yeah. Um, you know, is that a problem? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but it's it's uh, it's not as, as bad as overeating, okay? Right. But if I'm spending all my time on social media, and not actually hanging out with friends, there's some research, there's a debate about this, as you may know, in social psychology about how bad is it. Uh, but um, there's the uh, the woman who wrote the article for Atlantic on the how iPhones destroyed a, a generation. Um, her name was like, starts with... Uh, well, John, I mean, I know Jonathan Haidt has been has been yes. cha championing the uh, the uh, the downsides of smartphones and social media lately, but I'm not. And sure. And who is he with? Who's the woman who does that stuff with them? She's at use. She's at Cal State San Diego. And at any rate, yeah, the two of them are on the side of that. It's you know, uh, her research suggests that in fact, kids who spend more time on social media are actually more depressed and anxious than kids who spend you know, less time on social media. And conversely, this is a separate thing. If you spend more face-to-face -face time with friends, you're less depressed and anxious. Yeah. So 
you know, you would, you know, friendship is important. It, we feel very bad, you know, all the classic research and social psych that suggests that just by making somebody feel isolated, just by throwing a ball back and forth between two people and leaving out the third one, we can make somebody feel miserable. We don't like being left out. Uh, but, you know, does Facebook satisfy that need to be included? Not exactly, you know, uh, and so, yes, there there are, that's another example of what we generally call the mismatch problem that, mm -hmm. you know, um, so th there's sort of two things we talk about in the book. One is these cases where there are mismatches. I mean, another one that fits with what you were just talking about is that I, I'm old enough to have not done this, uh, but uh, when, uh, a young person wants to find a mate now, they can go on these services, okay? Yeah. Uh, like okay, Cupid is one that I was familiar with. So I read I read that very interesting book by one of the guys who started it. Um, Dataclism is what it was called. And he actually analyzed, he was a guy that had a math degree from Harvard and he helped start this. But, you know, in any event, I can go on and I can look at hundreds of possible mates. I bet you I even could at my age, you know, I'm 74 years old. I could probably go on and look at, you know, 200 women who are in the age range I might be interested. I could look at women who aren't even in the, you know, I could look at women yeah. in their 20s. And it turns out that older guys, when they look, they look at those young women. They're swiping, you know, they're looking at the young women. Now, they do. A guy my age has the good sense to realize that a 25-year-old is not going to be interested in him. <laughs> and so he actually contacts women who are closer to his age. Okay. But- as in the ancestral environment, one anthropologist estimated that you would have met about 25 people in your entire life that were that were both single and the right age that you could have possibly met, mated with them. In your entire, you would have met 25 people. You wouldn't have gotten those 25 people because they would have, there would have been other people your age, you know, interested in them as well. And right. You know, so it would have been very, very hard to have a lot of mates. Uh, and, you know, for most people throughout history, it would have been very hard to have too many mates. You know, there right. once we got once agriculture happened and there was an accumulation of resources and wealth and a status hierarchy, you could have people like you, Pinder Singh, the Magnificent, who had 350 wives. But most people in India, this was only about 100, 150 years ago, uh, could most, for every, you know, for 349 of those wives, there were guys out there who were single, uh, who couldn't, you know, find someone. So it was, it, it was very different all throughout history than it is today. Now, is that good or bad that you have access to so many mates? A lot of people find it stressful. A lot of people, I've been reading articles lately, people who say they just have sworn off these dating websites because it makes them feel bad about themselves. Uh, for a guy, for example, I'm going to make this number up, but it's something like, you know, a guy has to swipe through like 500 to 1,000 women to actually get a date, you know. Right. And again, I made that number up, but it's a shockingly high number. Well, uh, at the very woman, least, yeah, at, at the very least, it is... Um, it, it, you have to invest more time and energy into something that, uh, because, because you have all these options, you must put in effort and burn calories to accomplish it. Right. Whereas kind of, as you mentioned, if you're 
uh, if you're in a small tribe of early human ancestors, the, you know, the hunting for food part, if food is scarce, then that's, that's where you're putting all these calories. But in terms of just finding a mate, there's a lot less decision making you have to do. Like the decision exactly. piece is, is completely mm -hmm. gone for our early human ancestors. Whereas now, uh, you know, it's, it's constant weighing of options and, it, and, and it's clear when you start doing these apps, cause I've, I I've used them quite a bit. Um, I've actually just interviewed the, uh, interviewed someone for this show about online dating. Uh, there is because of the options, you can sort of feel, uh, your, you can feel that your brain is not intended to weigh this many options at one right. time. Right, right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, I think, yeah, one of the big problems of modern life. I mean, th there's the guy who talks about the paradox of choice, right? That when you go into the supermarket, you see uh, 25 kinds of olive oil, <laughs> you know? Um, right. And, and then if, if you're actually, if you're a little bit, you know, uh, obsessive, you might start looking at each one of them, you know, and it's, it's hard to get through the supermarket. Now, we manage, but nevertheless, it is, it can be stressful to have so many choices. That, and when it's something like choosing a, a good mate, it can really be, because it's an important decision, right? And so it can really be incredibly stressful. And if you think about a lot of things like choosing a job, you know, now th there's thousands of possible jobs you could get in the modern United States, literally thousands. If you lived in a hunter-gatherer village, there were maybe three, okay? Maybe you specialized in building canoes, but actually most people probably knew a little bit about how to make an arrow, a little bit about how to, you know, gather crops, a little bit about how to fish. Uh, <clears throat> and you didn't have so much division of labor. And now the division of labor is just insane. I mean, it's like in my hallway here, the woman next to me, she has a PhD in psychology, but it's developmental psychology. Okay. The person in the next office for me is an architect who's here, you know, help, you know, because we have we have two or three buildings in psychology. We need an architect to just help us deal with, you know, the issues of space. Um, and there's cognitive psychologists, there's physiological psychologists just in this, in this teeny little you know, group of people who all of whom are PhDs in psychology, we don't even speak the same language uh, as one another. So that all of that specialization, it's great in the sense that it provides a lot of opportunities. But I, you know, I looked at my younger son who was just starting college and uh, it was very anxiety provoking for him to try to think, what should I do? What should I do? I want to pick the right one, you know? And it was yeah. hard for me to explain to him that, you know, they're all the right one. <laughs> you know, if you pick, if you, if you show up and work hard and, you know, and enjoy yourself, most jobs are going to be pretty good, you know? And if you um, are keep, if you're spending a lot of time thinking, I'd rather be doing something else, most jobs can suck. <laughs> now, would you, so I want to put you on the spot and ask you if you think specifically with the, 
decision-making element of life and choosing paths, right? Smaller communities, smaller uh, in, in smaller cities in the U.S., you know, you meet someone in high school and it's perfectly acceptable to marry your high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you take over the family business. Maybe you skip college. You you just, you know, get a job working with your hands or something like that. The simple life people, you know, the, the, if you think of the simple mm -hmm. life or or how it used to be in the you know 50s and whatnot, right? would you go so far as to say that we should we should start with the idea of living a simple life and and try to push back against the the overwhelming uh, technology the the overwhelming number of job options and stuff like that do you do you think that that we need to turn back around and go back into that direction to learn something or do you think we should just learn how to adapt better to the world of, of, of overwhelming options. Yeah, that, that's a really lovely question, you know, because <clears throat> believe it or not, I don't have a good answer to that because mm -hmm. I, when I think about it, I mean, I'm a, a product of the modern world. I grew up in New York city. Uh, so I actually never knew a village, although in my little neighborhood in New York city, we all went, I went to the, uh, the school at the corner and everybody, everybody in the neighborhood was Catholic. They all went to the Catholic school. Some of the kids went to the public school. Okay. But there was just, you know, we all knew one another. We knew one another's families. We'd sit around on the stoops of the houses. Uh, hardly anybody drove. So people didn't go away too far. We had built in friends. We had cousins. I had cousins in the building next to me then. Um, and, and, you know, Yet I could get on a train and go into New York City and see, you know, paintings by famous artists. I could go right. to the Museum of Natural History. Uh, I, you know, I was able to get a job as a university professor in the state of Arizona. Um, and I lived in Montana for my first job was at Montana State. And, you know, next month I'm going to go to Spain uh, with my younger son and visit several different universities and beautiful towns. I'm going to go to Barcelona and San Sebastian and eat this incredible food. I couldn't have done that in the ancestral environment. And I kind of love it. At the same time, you know, there is, I, I think we need to negotiate the fact that there's anxieties associated with that. You know, I mean, it was like, it took me until this age to be able to plan a trip like that, you know, and, and uh, you know, I got a little obsessive about the details. I picked all of my like Airbnbs and hotels. I got all my plane tickets and train tickets and plane tickets in advance. And, you know, when you're a young person and you start you start traveling, it's pretty crazy because all of a sudden you're around other people speaking different languages, yeah. you know, and it's both exciting and stressful. And so would I say, no, stay home on the farm? Uh, you know, my my ancestors lived in Ireland, you know, and they probably came over here during one of the potato famines. Um, should I go back to Ireland? No, you know, I mean, I wouldn't fit in there. Um, but should I understand that there's a part of me that would feel more comfortable in that little village? Yes. And can I construct my life so that it's a little bit more like the parts of that little village I like? So like I told you, my son works in the psych department and he has a house two blocks from me. And I'm 
really happy with that, you know, because he grew up far away from me. All right. Um, but now he lives near me and I really, I do like that. I mean, not that we don't have any conflicts with one another. Yes, we do sometimes, you know, uh, but you know, we don't ever break up the, my friendships can dissolve if we have an argument. My family doesn't dissolve if we have an argument. Um, and by having my older son around and his kids, they're friends for my younger son. Okay. So I like having a kin network around, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, I like having a group of friends that I've known now for 50 years, but I, you sometimes have to consciously go out of your way to try to make it a little bit more like a village. You know, I have to, yeah. I worked, my advisor was Bob Cialdini, who's still in the building next door. I have to go out of my way to be sure I invite Cialdini to lunch once in a while, you know, and uh, invite Newberg, who's my, he, Newberg and Cialdini and my son, Dave, are co-authors of a social psych textbook. And, you know, we, that gives me excuse to get together with these guys frequently. Uh, but I, I really do have to go out of my way to be sure that I'm not, you know, I'm not living in that totally dissociated world of, well, I'll just do anything. There's no constraints on human behavior because it's, you know, it's, distressing. I've, for example, I've been divorced twice in my life. I would recommend it, you know, if you're in a marriage and you're not beating the hell out of one another and making one another really miserable, I recommend doing everything you can to stay, even with all those wonderful options one now has to maybe find the next beautiful, you know, or attractive or charming person. It's costly, you know, and so the extent to which you can make your life a little bit more like a, a village in which you kind of trust one another and you don't take the opportunity to run away when there's a slightly better job or a slightly better mate or a slightly more interesting friend right now. I, I think, you know, I think it's it's good to do that. It's good to try to, to at least keep the parts of the ancestral environment that we could without living in a little village, you know, and yeah. digging up yeah. roots. <laughs> yeah, I, I always like the the analogy of of using evolution as a lens, right? If you mm -hmm. if you're sort of if you have your your personal problems to to put on your your lenses of of the evolutionary landscape to sort of see you know uh, to see how early humans would have solved these issues, you know, you think about and that's why I like about the book because you talk about so many different modern problems. And and how evolution can inform some of those uh, problems. I wanted to talk about um, our sort of modern obsession with being happy. Um, happiness oh. is this big, this big sort of murky goal. No one actually knows what happiness is. We have we have an entire field of positive psychology that has made some groundwork in sort of establishing some pillars of well being, but. And, you know, for some reason, the, the public, you know, it's still something that we're striving for is, is to be happier more often and to be less anxious. Um, now, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, our brains aren't really designed to maximize our happiness. They're designed to maximize survival and reproduction. Happiness is 
sort of something that that can help us along the way, but it's it's not the core motive, right? It's, it's a signal like that you just that you're doing things right today is what it's you know if you're feeling right. happy, it means okay, I just did some things that are going to increase that would have increased my ancestors' fitness. Uh, usually, right. although actually in the modern world there's another little trick which is that we we can actually artificially trigger the brain's happiness mechanisms. I can take drugs, okay? I can drink that, you know, three cans of IPA and I'll feel relaxed without actually having done anything to that I should feel relaxed about. Um, I can take, I don't like stimulants, you know, but um, I could take stimulants and get a lift um, and without actually having done anything that in the ancestral environment would have said, okay, you should feel excited now. Okay. Uh, and so that's a little bit of a problem. But normally in the ancestral environment, we have those mechanisms in our brain that respond to, you know, to opioids and, you know, to, you know, stimulants because they were signals that, okay, under these circumstances, you should be feeling this particular feeling. And it's appropriate to feel this good feeling now. And if you're feeling excited, that means keep doing whatever you've been doing. If you're feeling depressed, that's a signal to slow down and maybe change course uh, and quit burning calories doing the same damn thing over and over. Um, so understanding that, you know, it, it if you really understand that, you understand why it makes no sense to take the drugs to get you there but to try to get there naturally. Okay, you you mentioned something like meditation, I forget, but it's like, you know, it, it's it's good to train yourself to just, you know, reduce your stress naturally rather than to just, you know, beat the shit out of yourself all day long, you know, trading stock options. Like I had friends who used to do that in Philly and what a terrible job. You'd think, oh, they make a ton of money. It was a terrible job. They were screaming and yelling all day and they were always upset that, that if they waited 10 more seconds, they would have missed a possible deal, you know? And yeah. and then you can go home at, at the end of the day and drink some whiskey and relax yourself. That's not a healthy lifestyle, you know? Um, yeah, much yeah. better to, you know, to slow things down and naturally get a relaxed feeling at the end of the day. Well, there's also a growing, I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence that uh, that when when you have these dopamine increases that are not tied to any behavior mm -hmm. that it's that in the long run, you're going to have lower lows once you, once, once that dopamine crashes, right. right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Which makes it even more sinister to sort of, you know, use, use a, a substance to hack your reward system or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and this is the, another thing where I think just knowing about research is, is very useful because there are, look, it's easy to fall prey to, we want to feel good. We're designed to want to feel good. It's easy to fall prey to kind of quick. We want things quickly too. I mean, you know, one of the things when I was writing this book, so I've written a couple of other books about evolution and behavior, but this one, we were interested in kind of writing a book that was a bit self-helpy, you know, does, does evolutionary psychology tell us anything that can help us live a more fulfilling life? And when you start reading books in the kind of pop psych zone, you know, and you go into the bookstore and look at what's there, there's so much of this shit that says like, you know, here's the one secret 
that will make you happy. Here's the, or here's the one thing you can do to make yourself rich. You know, here's mm -hmm. the one thing. And it's like, that's all total bullshit, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, and it's really good to know that, that look, you're not going to solve life. There's, first of all, understanding that pyramid all your life, you're always going to have these different sets of issues to deal with and dealing with them, you know, can be rewarding, uh, but it's, it's not that easy. Okay. And in fact, it's like anything else. If you want to be in shape, it takes the first few times you run, it hurts, okay? Uh, and you just have to train yourself to do healthy things because your body naturally is trying to conserve calories, okay? And your body naturally looks, you know, the mind naturally looks for shortcuts. And that's would have been fine in the assessment environment, but in the modern world, there's just too many shortcuts that basically end up hurting us along the way, like the, you know, like the, the drug shortcut. But there's... There's, you know, lots of others, you know, uh, that, you know, one of the shortcuts that people think is, oh, if I make a ton of money, then I'll be happy because it is the case. Sure, look, money buys a lot, right? It could buy me a nice house, a nice car. It could buy me, it can make me more attractive. But, you know, there's this research, um, and I forget who the author of this is, but I don't know if you had him on. I think, no, the guy's name is, is Kasser, I believe, who's done all this stuff on materialism, that people who spend a lot of time thinking about gaining material wealth are less happy than people who spend less time thinking about it. And then there's, I think her name is Irene Mouse, who's done this research in that zone of positive psych, that actually seeking happiness is correlated with being less happy. You know, And in fact, cause, yeah. it, 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 I think there's some evidence it's causal. It's not just, you know, sure, if I'm unhappy, I want to be happier, but actually being too actively in, in the you know, the zone of saying, I want to make myself happy. It's a way to get disappointed. You know, what you should say instead is, you know, I want to solve a problem and I, you know, I want to help someone. That's oddly enough, one of the, the things. You know, so various different theories that have, have been popular in psychology and related disciplines. One of them is the rational economic model, which is that, you know, if I maximize my utility, and economists have for a long time thought that mostly in terms of money. I get a lot of money, that'll be good. Um, and if I do things for me, that's you know gonna make me happier. You know, in fact, people who misinterpreted early evolutionary psychology, the selfish gene, anything I do that's selfish, well, isn't that the way we're designed? But it actually turns out that the research evidence suggests that that weirdly enough, the thing that can make me feel best is to do something for you, you know, to do a favor yeah. for someone else. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense that we're wired up that way because people who have a proclivity to help other people, they're more trusted, they're more integrated into the social network. And when I have a fish and they don't, I'm very happy to share with that person who was nice to me last week, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've had lots of uh, it, it is a common misunderstanding of of uh, of 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 evolution, uh, specifically the survival, the survival of the fittest kind of, you know, idea mm -hmm. that that everything has to serve the individual. Uh, every trait has to has to, you know, be some sort of selfish trait when in reality it's going to be a blend because there is no. There is no individual that succeeds without the presence or help of a group.
Right. I, you know what's interesting? I reread uh, I I read the like 25th anniversary edition of of the Selfish Gene just recently. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole chapter now on nice guys finish first. And he said, one of the biggest yeah. misunderstandings people made, he, he said, I could have called the book The Unselfish Gene. That just wouldn't have sounded very jazzy, right? But, you know, um, <laughs> but, you know, the gene is designed every every unit of of, you know, re, of, you know, reproduction is designed to fit in with a set, a network of other genes to produce an organism that works together so that all of those genes can survive and reproduce. Um, and that organism does best if it's in a network of other organisms that are helping it survive and reproduce. And so, you know, it is at the genetic level, yes, our ancestors did things so to replicate those particular genes, and it's selfish at that level, but a lot of the stuff they did was cooperate with other people, you know, that they did the very best when they were getting along with other people. That was just, it was sort of a, you know, it's a formula for uh, for better survival and better reproduction is to be a nice person. You know, we, other people like you better, other people mate with you more. Uh, and so at a at a deep level, at a philosophical level, you might call it selfish, but an actual behavioral level, it's a bad lesson for people to think, yeah, hey, everybody's designed to be selfish. No, that we're not really. So people are... I, I do want to close uh, talking more about uh, groups and uh, because one of the biggest big modern problems that we're experiencing now is this sort of strong in-group versus out-group uh, comparison, right? So, you know, fundamental social psychology talks about how we're, we, we tend to like our in-group members and, mm-hmm. uh, and see us as being a cohesive unit. And if you're in that out group, we, you know, develop negative ideas about you. We, and our, our cognitions sort of differentiate ourselves much more easily from those others. Um, I'm always interested in this idea because it all has to do with what circles you draw in terms of these groups mm-hmm. that you're falling in. So if you start with you start with the self and then you have a circle that includes your immediate family, uh, sometimes your it's your extended family and that's that would be the similar version to our ancestors. but right. we don't live in that world anymore. We have we have uniquely different circles that, encompass a city we've got a country and ultimately we end up with a circle that we consider the human race which is not really something our brains are are capable of of understanding necessarily or at the very least we've never we don't have any comparative group of that size right so so that's a very that's a a, a unique problem in many ways I think except yeah. I, our ancestors kind of did have to always face a trade off between you know we could go and we could kill the people in the next village okay and take what they've got or we could get along with them and trade with them and you know I mean when I was a kid growing up in New York we used to fight 
And it was always better. I learned to the tough way to learn with, you know, having my nose smashed a few times is that it's a lot better to cooperate with the people in the neighborhood than to try to beat them up because you, you know, every time you attack, you're going to get counterattacked. Now, I wasn't the bully. I was the skinny intellectual kid, but I was tall. And so people thought maybe I could fight. And so they started fights with me. But it's like one of the best skills I learned was to just get the hell out of it, you know, be funny, for example. Um, and I feel like in many ways that lesson that at least we have some capacities, you know, that our ancestors had to get along with the people in the next village. And those are the ones that I feel like we do need to nurture, because in some sense, if you think about it, look, I'm when I read the I read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I get pissed off every day that, you know, the other people, you know, yeah. who are, you know, in places like Arizona and Florida, who are um, basically don't agree with people like me sitting in a university office. Right. You know, um, right. but uh in in an ideal world, you know, uh, we should really cherish people who can bridge the gaps between these different groups. Because if we got along with one another, you know, even if you think of so, I, if I'm a rich person, you know, um, and I think, oh, gee, why should I be giving money to poor people? Well, partially it's because so they don't rob you. Okay, <laughs> so you know, if everybody has a a minimum, you know, one of there's just good evidence now that economic inequality is associated with crime and violence. Okay. And so it isn't, it's another one of those ironies where if I give up a little bit, you know, I can actually make my world in the long run a safer place. But it's kind of hard, you know, it's uh, clearly it's hard, you know, but I'm always in favor of, you know, I mean, it, not to get political, but I know a lot of liberals. You know, don't like anybody who cooperates. You know, Biden wasn't radical enough for a lot of very liberal people. But it's like, you know, my thought is, and he hasn't, you know, it's it's hard to succeed in the modern world. But I'd rather have somebody trying to cooperate with other groups. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather have someone who solves the problem of conflict and solves the problem of dealing with nasty people uh, by not by going out and trying to be nasty back to those people and kill those other people on the other side. Now I'm thinking of other, you know, international mm -hmm. conflicts. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, you know, there are, uh, there are other solutions and, you know, it, your question though, is I think a very great one because the question is, can we, are we capable of solving this problem of the modern world with, you know, with so much, rapid spread of negative information and often false information and so many weapons at the local level you know people there's more guns in the US than there are people if I, I I don't know that for a fact but I believe that's true there's nuclear weapons in the world we're living in a world that's that's in many ways better than it ever was but in other words it's very dangerous and if we don't solve the problem of intergroup cooperation, well, you know, we'll be just another one of those species that went extinct. And I guess for my children's children, I hope that <laughs> I hope that we can we can figure out a way 
in the same way that you, you know you can i mean let me give you an example that i think i think this was recently martin luther king day but you know when you listen to martin luther king's speech about you know children walking hand in hand you know inter you know black and white kids walking hand in hand it, it's always kind of uplifting and he used a lot of familial language so in some sense you know people like that are good at using our brains, tapping into the brain's cooperative networks to get us to do things that we wouldn't naturally have done. You know, we wouldn't naturally have actually walked hand in hand with people who look that different from us, but we would cooperate, we would trade with our neighbors. And so, you know, there, there are mechanisms in there that we can, that we can hopefully work with. Um, well, which side well, yeah. will win? I don't know. <laughs> Well, on that note, which I think is an optimistic one, uh, I will uh, mention again that uh, the name of the book is Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain. Uh, and once again, that is uh, authored by uh, uh, Doug and his son, David. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being on today, Doug Kenrick. Great. Good talking to you. For more on Doug, check out his new book, Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain, wherever books are sold. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at whydowedothatpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs> <laughs>